episode we had during the week. Uh, I, I know that uh, many of you probably didn't feel like you were safe because your kids ended up staying home. And, and it, you know, it's, it's not always safe when that happens, but uh, we're glad to have them back. No, they're not going to school tomorrow, uh, but Tuesday, uh, there'll be some re uh, relief from that if you've been distressed by it at all. We do have uh, at, at least two uh, families uh, that, it were, that are either part of our church or connected to our church that uh, had a, uh, a serious accident during the course of the, of the week and, you know, all of that slipperiness, but... Uh, Happy to be able to say that everybody is well, and, uh, and uh, you know, there's some consequences, but, but certainly not, uh, not as bad as it could have been. Um, we just finished the, our annual uh, Potter's House Core Leadership Team Leadership Summit. That's a mouthful. Do not attempt to say that on your own. I'm a trained professional. Um, uh, and, man, it was a good time. It was just a really good time. We, we heard from uh, our, our missionaries, the missionaries that we support. The, they all sent in video updates, and, and we were able to listen to some of those. And it occurred to me that, uh, that perhaps uh, one of the best things that we could do with that is to get, some, get those on thumb drives and get them out to our, our life group leaders so that you can interact, uh, the life groups can interact with those in terms of praying and hearing some of the updates. There are some amazing things that have been happening and, uh, and the amazing plans, amazing dreams that uh, these, these co-workers of ours have, the people that we support or have sent out. We also uh, put in place, uh, had some conversations about uh, a way that we can provide uh, more, uh, more opportunities for you to get training in some of the things that you're facing on a, on a regular basis, whether it's parenting or, or marriage or uh, other forms of ministry within the, within the body. We're going to be uh, working on putting that out uh, it, it, and making it more available to you so that you can attend if you wish or, you know, take a pass on it if that's what you want to do. But uh, it would be better, we think, if we could just get that out there for you and uh, you can be praying with us as we seek to do that. But we also heard from all of, at least most of our ministries in terms of uh, a one-minute update in, uh, with, from more than 20 different ministries that are currently going on here at Potter's House. And uh, as I sat there, my heart just it swelled up. It really, truly did to listen to all that's going on and all that uh, that's, uh, we're participating in as a body right here in this place. So uh, be praying as we look at the future. We do this every year and then attempt during the year to, to do what we said we were going to do as we got together. And uh, we'll be, you'd be praying with us if you would uh, ask God to help us to get where we said we're going. This morning we're going to be continuing our studies in Paul's first letter to Timothy in a series entitled Be Strong in Grace. And this is part five and entitled God Considered Me Trustworthy. We'll be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 14, and, and last week, you may remember that we worked our way through verses 8 to 11, and we looked at the truth found in that passage through the lens of a story that Paul told us in Galatians chapter 2. You may remember from the story that the apostle Peter visited a city called Antioch of Pisidia. This is not the same Antioch where the church was that sent out Paul and Barnabas. It's a different, it's a different city. And uh, you, can, uh, you can actually see it there. Uh, Antioch of Pisidia is in Pisidia there up to the north. Antioch that sent out Paul and Barnabas is right under that word, the big Cilicia and Syria there. 
Antioch that sent them out is there. So they, Paul and Barnabas were some distance from home in a place where there were uh, not just no believers, in a place that was unreached, a place that hadn't had the opportunity to hear the gospel prior to Paul and Barnabas arriving there. And uh, while they were visiting, the apostle Peter showed up in that city there. Um, and, uh, well, it, it, when he first arrived there, uh, Paul and Barnabas were preaching the gospel in, in Antioch of Pisidia, and both Jews and Gentiles were believing God, believing the gospel and, and being saved and becoming part of God's kingdom. Uh, the, their ministry was very fruitful and very effective. And then Peter showed up, and that wasn't a bad thing, and, uh, just like Paul and Barnabas, because just like Paul and Barnabas, he began eating and fellowshipping with the Gentiles. That's what Paul and Barnabas were doing. They were fellowshipping with the Gentiles who weren't believers yet and looking for an opportunity to share the gospel with them. And then when they would come to Christ, uh, they, would, they would continue to eat and, and fellowship with them, which was something that Jews did not do. It was not even legal under Jewish law for a Jewish person to do that. So Peter showed up, and, and uh, he began fellowshipping and eating and, and with the Gentiles, and, and that was something that Paul encouraged. In his mind, Jews and Gentiles, who especially had become followers of Jesus, should eat together and fellowship with one another because they were all part of the kingdom by faith in Jesus and it, the, by faith in, in what Jesus had done for all of them collectively. And things were perfect until a guy named James got involved. Now... Uh, here at the Potter's House, we have a teaching back guarantee. I've promised you this in the past. We have a teaching back guarantee. And I, I have to tell you that I shot from the hip last week and said that the James in that story in Galatians chapter 2 who sent those guys to Galatia was not the same man who wrote the letter that we, all, that we spent all last year studying. I, I told you that. And actually, I, I felt a bit of liberty in that because there are at least six men that, uh, that go by the name of James. They don't have last names, so it can be hard to sort them out. But turns out, uh, as, I, as I looked back at it and, and got into it in depth during the week, turns out he was the same man who wrote the letter. So I was... I was... I was... I, was, <clears throat> I wasn't right when I said that. <laughs> I, I've got men sitting here going, don't, 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 don't use that word. Because then my wife will expect me to use it. I was wrong. I, just, I was just flat out wrong when I said that. And I have to tell you that I'm not sure why James uh, would have sent the Judaizers to Galatia. But, uh, but he did. And it stands as a reminder to me of how easy it is to pervert the gospel. To be confused about the basic tenets of the purity and the simplicity of the gospel. And how we all need to be on our guard. And that's why we've been talking about it, the, well, the real reason we've been talking about it these last few weeks is because Paul started with the gospel, the pure and simple message of the gospel. You see, James had sent some teachers, according to the story Paul told us last week, James had sent some teachers from the church at Jerusalem, and those men that, that James sent managed somehow to get under Peter's skin. It's very clear. Remember, Peter had been fellowshipping and eating with the Gentiles and the Gentiles who had become followers of Jesus. But when the teachers from Jerusalem arrived, Peter stopped doing that. He stopped fellowshipping with them. He stopped eating with them. Peter did that because those teachers that had come from Jerusalem were teaching people that a person becomes part of God's kingdom by keeping the law. That was their message. 
We call them Judaizers because they believe that you had to enter through the door of Judaism in order to become a follower of Jesus because Jesus was Jewish and all of the early Christians, all of the first followers had all grown up in Judaism and had believed in Jesus. And so they set up Judaism as the door through which people would have to walk. And the way you become a Jew is by keeping the law, the ceremonial law, the moral law. And um, that's what the Judaizers were saying. You have to keep the law. You have to become a Jew. You have to, there's all these things that you have to do. And they made that part of the gospel. And what was Paul teaching during that time? Well, Paul was teaching the opposite of what the Judaizers were preaching. Paul was preaching that people became part of God's kingdom by believing the gospel, the good news about Jesus, that it was as simple and as pure as that. These teachers of the law, as I mentioned, were called Judaizers because they believed that Judaism was the doorway. Jesus wasn't the doorway. Judaism was the doorway. And people had to enter through the doorway of Judaism if they wanted to become followers of Jesus. So Paul and Barnabas, and most likely Peter, were butting heads with the Judaizers, at least at first, until the moment came when Peter stopped arguing with the Judaizers and decided to join their camp. He stopped eating and fellowshipping with the Gentiles. And one by one, the other Jews followed suit, followed Peter's example, until even Barnabas, the last person you would have expected on the... Even, even Paul is not even last on the list of the people that I would expect to make a move like this. Barnabas is because of his heart. He was the one that had gone and found the Apostle Paul and brought him to Antioch so that they could minister together. When everybody was mistrusting... Barnabas believed in Paul. Barnabas trusted Paul. And, uh, and, but even Barnabas ends up going off in that direction and, and not eating with the Gentiles because of Peter. And, and uh, they had deserted Paul in the process. But when I say that they had deserted Paul, it turns out that they had deserted much more than Paul. And, and we're going to look at that in just a moment. In any event, Peter and the other Jewish Jesus followers had been fellowshipping together with the Gentile Jesus followers, but then they just walked away due to the influence of these other people who had come from Jerusalem. So can you imagine with me for a moment what that would have done to the Gentiles who had believed Paul's teaching and had begun to follow Jesus? I can imagine them coming to Paul and saying, we thought that you said that people become part of God's kingdom, that people are forgiven, that people are saved by believing in Jesus and what he did on the cross for us, to which Paul would have replied, yeah, absolutely. That is how you become part of God's kingdom. Well, okay, Paul, they might have said at that point, but these other, these other guys don't seem to believe that same thing at all because they teach that we have to keep the law and maybe even become Jews before we can begin to follow Jesus, before we can become part of God's kingdom. So, Paul, what is, which, which is true? Which one is true? What's going on here? You see, Paul would have known that the Judaizers, the law keepers, were undermining the faith of the Gentiles who were believing in Jesus and following Jesus. That's what Paul calls it in other places. When we do something that undermines the faith of other people, when we do something that helps them to see that the gospel isn't, isn't the real deal, it's actually this that you must do. When we add something to or take something away from the gospel, we are undermining the faith of the people who have believed the gospel. Paul had said that believing in Jesus was enough. And the Judaizers had shown up later and said that Paul was wrong. The Judaizers were saying that believing in Jesus was not 
enough. There was more to it than that. And that was enough to undermine the faith of these new believers who had believed what Paul had said, but were now doubting the power of the good news, the power of the gospel, because of what the Judaizers were saying. That's what was happening there in that, those churches in Galatia. And I find it interesting that Paul, who never hesitated to tussle with the Judaizers on any occasion, didn't say or do anything to challenge them in public, at least on that occasion. Instead of going after the Judaizers, Paul went after Peter. And if you remember from the story last week, Paul didn't say there that the Judaizers were in the wrong. He said that Peter was in the wrong. That's the way that story goes down. It wasn't the Judaizers who were undermining the faith of those new Gentile believers. It was Peter who was undermining the faith of those new Gentile believers. The Judaizers were attacking their faith, those, the faith of the new believers, but they were outsiders to the church, and any teacher that's worth his salt, any elder that's worth his salt, any leader that's worth his salt can deal with people who come from the outside. Peter, on the other hand, was undermining the faith of, of the new believers because he was an insider to the church. The Judaizers were them, and they can be dealt with. But Peter was us. And that kind of division, that kind of undermining that comes from within a fellowship can take a church down, literally destroy a church. Those new Gentile believers have begun to think that believing in Jesus and trusting in his death, burial, and resurrection was not enough. And they've begun to think that, think that because of Peter's influence and the way he was living. And because the gospel was under attack, that means that Peter and his friends were not only undermining the, under, undermining the faith of those new Gentile believers, they were also undermining the death of Christ. They were saying that the death of Christ is not enough, and that is undermining the death of Christ. Now, in fairness to Peter... He was deceived. We have to cut him that much slack. He was deceived by the Judaizers, and so we need to cut him that slack. But to Paul's point, as we mentioned last week, Peter wasn't deceived about ecclesiology. Peter hadn't allowed himself to be deceived, deceived about eschatology. Peter had allowed himself to be deceived about the gospel. The gospel. And it's not okay to allow yourself to be deceived about the gospel. It's not okay to be confused about the gospel. It's not okay to not understand the gospel. It's not okay to not be able to explain the gospel to someone else. And I don't want you to be intimidated by that idea, but I do want you to take the gospel seriously. In fact, I'm asking you this morning to make the gospel the single most important thing in your life. More important than anything else. Because it is the most important thing that you have to offer to your spouse. It's the most important thing you have to offer to your children. I'm asking you to treat the good news that Jesus died for our sin, was buried, and was raised again the third day. The one thing in your life that you cannot do without. Even if everything else is taken away. That pure and simple message must remain resident in your heart. as the thing that you treasure above all. And that's the reason that we're placing such a huge emphasis on the gospel as we begin our journey into Paul's first letter to Timothy. Well, primarily because Paul's doing that under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. When Paul wrote to Timothy, his true son in the faith, he began with the gospel. 
and the vital importance of the gospel. And Paul has been helping us to understand that the gospel is, is vitally important at the moment when we begin our journey to follow Jesus. When we begin to follow Jesus, the gospel is all that we have. But the importance of the gospel reaches beyond that first moment because the truth is the gospel is vitally important every moment of every day all along the journey we're taking together until the day we stand in his presence. The gospel will carry us all that way. And we can be absolutely certain that the gospel will never lose its power. But we must do whatever it takes to make sure that no one ever takes the gospel, the pure gospel, out of our hands by deceiving us into believing that anything needs to be added to the gospel to make it more effective or taken away from the gospel to make it more appealing. Don't let anyone do that to you or to your message that, that you have to share with other people. At the same time, let's not forget that Paul was very clear. God's law is good. Brian talked to us about that the week before. God's law is good. And more than that, God's law is perfect. And as a testament to that fact, look at what David wrote in the 19th Psalm. Psalm 19, verses 7 to, to 9, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. God's law is perfect and powerful and poignant and to the point. The fault in our stars doesn't come from any kind of brokenness in, our, in the law. The fault in our stars comes from a brokenness deep within us. Even William Shakespeare got this. He understood this. He has Cassius say, The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. In other words, we're not the victims of, the, of blind bad luck here. We're not the victims of the law. We're not the victims of crossed stars. I mean, if you were to talk to someone who was in jail, and maybe you do talk to people, maybe you stop talking to people when they go to jail, I don't know, but had a ministry for three years in a federal penitentiary, maximum security up there in Pennsylvania. And if you were to talk to someone who's in jail and he were to tell you that people have been saying that he's in jail because he murdered someone, and then he said, it's not my fault that I'm in jail because it's not my fault that there's a law against killing people. I mean, if that was his rationale, how would you react to that? You might consider pointing out to him that the law didn't send him to prison. It was his actions that sent him to prison. The fault is deep within, not with the law itself. The law simply pointed out how wrong his actions were. And that's exactly what God's law does. We were born separated from a holy God. We were born sinners. And we lived out that role with all the passion we could manage. The law came along. And pointed out how broken we truly were. But the law could do nothing to take away our brokenness. It wasn't able to deal with our basic brokenness. But once again, the problem was not with the law. Our brokenness is not because of the law. God's honest truth is that the, pro is, is that the problem and the brokenness are within us. And that means that the law lacks the power to save us. But as we've been saying these past three weeks and, and often from this pulpit, the gospel is the power 
of God that saves people. So don't let anyone talk you into trying to get into God's kingdom by keeping the law because they are selling you an empty bag of goods. You walk out of the store having paid a great deal and there's nothing in the bag that you're carrying out. And fight tooth and nail for the purity and the simplicity of the gospel. Because it is it, uh, the, not only is the gospel the power of God that saves people, it's also humanity's only hope. It's the only thing that we have to offer that provides any hope for anyone, anywhere. The passage for this morning, that we've take, we'll, be, we'll be talking more about these things as, as we get into it. But, but before we start unpacking the passage, we need to take the time to read the passage aloud together. I feel like I'm seeing some new faces, but uh, I, I hope you'll be comfortable to stand with us. Uh, as we read together, if you're able to stand, uh, if you're able to read aloud with us, we really like that because I'd like to hear you speaking the word to yourself as you go. Uh, let's read from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Thank you. You can take your seats and be thankful to God that he always blesses us with his truth whenever we read his word, even at a moment like that. I don't know how well you remember the book of Acts that we studied way back in 2015. Can you imagine that? Here it is, 2022. So seven years ago, we were in the book of Acts together. Acts, of course, is just one long story about how the first Jesus followers were always willing to share the gospel with anyone, anywhere, anytime. That's, a, that's the big story of the book of Acts. Now, back then, as we studied the book of Acts, we kept saying that we want our lives to fit into the book of Acts. You remember we kept using that phrase. In other words, we wanted the story of our lives to reflect the story that we were learning from the book of Acts. The problem was that we kept meeting people in the book of Acts who didn't seem to have the sense to be intimidated when they clearly should have been. Uh, they would share the gospel with sorcerers and politicians and, and pagan priests and a whole bunch of other people with, well, we might have avoided sharing the gospel with those people. But these folks in the book of Acts, they just were absolutely fearless. I mean, they were relentless in their pursuit. So how are we supposed to measure up to that? How are we supposed to take an example from their lives? As we studied Acts that year, I kept thinking, wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice if just once someone in the book of Acts would be intimidated and even hesitant when it comes to telling someone else about Jesus? I don't know if you sometimes feel intimidated or hesitant. I know that I do. But... If there were someone like that in the book of Acts, we could easily identify with a man or woman like that, couldn't we? Whenever I study Acts, I think to myself, wouldn't it be nice if just once in the book of Acts, God would ask somebody to share the gospel with someone and, and they wouldn't want to do it because they were afraid? Wouldn't it be nice if just once God would ask somebody to tell someone about Jesus and they didn't want to do it? I think I could plug into a person like that. I think I could learn from a person like that because I could identify with that. And that would at least be an example that we could all learn from. Well, in this story that I plan to tell you this morning, we're going to meet a guy who, that God is going to speak directly to, and he's going to tell him to do something 
that was slated to change the course of human history on planet Earth. But this guy is going to react to God with the rough equivalent of, are you kidding me? Seriously? You want me to what? I say, well, I love this guy. I think you're going to like this guy because he may resemble the person that, well, the person that you see in the mirror. At least he may resemble the person you see in the mirror more than, say, Peter or John or Stephen or Philip. Those guys are superheroes. And you may not see a superhero when you look in the mirror. If you do, come and talk to me. I'd, I'd like to buy your mirror. You may not see a superhero when you look in the mirror. At least I know that I don't see a superhero when I look in the mirror. His name, this guy's name, by the way, is Ananias, and he's not the Ananias. I know, here I go again, right? I'll correct it next week if I'm wrong. But I'm quite, quite certain this time that he's not the Ananias that we saw in chapter 5 because that Ananias is already dead. And, you know, it's hard for any dead man to share the gospel with anybody, so you've got to get that done. Anyway, this guy's name is Ananias, so be listening for him. And uh, you want to listen, I think, very carefully to his story to see how he reacts when God gives him an, uh, something very, very important to do. And with that background, this is the story from God's Word from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 19. And, and feel free to turn there and, and fact check me as I go. A man named Saul was threatening daily to murder the followers of Jesus. And in fact, he went to the high priest, the, 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 the highest of the authority there within Jerusalem. He went to the high priest to ask for a letter to give him authority to go from Jerusalem to Damascus. And Saul's plan was to arrest everyone that he found there in Damascus who adhered to or belonged to or followed the way. We're just talking about the followers of Jesus. And, and his plan was to take them then in chains for trial and punishment there in Jerusalem. As Saul was getting close to Damascus, suddenly there was this bright light from heaven that flashed around him. Saul fell to the ground and heard a voice speaking to him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The voice asked. Who are you? Lord, Saul said, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, the voice replied. Jesus then went on to say, get up on your, on your, on your feet and go into the city of Damascus and, and, and wait there. You'll be told what to do. The men who were traveling there with, with Saul during that time uh, we just stood there silently because they could hear a voice, clearly hear a voice, but they had no idea where the voice was coming from. Saul got up off the ground like he was told to do, but when he opened his eyes, he couldn't see a thing. He was completely blind. The men that were with him there led him into Damascus, and he stayed there for three days, three whole days, unable to see, and, and he neither ate food nor drank water during that entire time. A follower of Jesus named Ananias lived in Damascus, and the Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias! The Lord said, yes, Lord, Ananias replied. The Lord said, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man named Saul because he's praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come into his home and place his hands on him so that he can receive his sight, the Lord said. Lord, Ananias said, I have heard many reports about this guy. 
and, and the, the harm he's done to your holy people there in Jerusalem. I've also heard that he's come here to Damascus. He has orders and, a, and authority from the chief priests to arrest all of those who follow you. I still want you to go to him and heal him, the Lord said, because I have a plan for his life. And he will teach the Gentiles about me, and he will go to their kings and to their rulers. He will also have much to teach the people of Israel, and I want him to understand that he will suffer greatly for my name. Ananias went to the house of Saul and, and, and went inside where Saul was waiting. He placed his hands on Saul, and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me to you. And he's told me to help you see again, and to help you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And right away, there was something like scales that fell from Paul's eyes, and, and he was able to see. Saul, I called him Paul, I apologize. Saul got up and was baptized, and after eating some food, he regained his strength. And that's the story from God's Word. Now, if we lived in a police state, and Yes, I realize that those are inflammatory words, at least on social media. And I don't want to lock horns with anybody this morning, but when I hear someone say that we live in a police state or when I hear someone compare our country to Nazi Germany, I, quite frankly, I find myself wondering if that person has ever read a history book. That's all I have to say about that. You want to lock horns with me later, I still won't want to do it. But for the sake of the illustration... I hope that you'd be willing to work with me. Can I ask you just to do that? And if we lived in a police state and we were to hear from uh, the head of the, we were to hear that the head of the secret police in Jerusalem, in, in, in Washington, had come to the lake area to hunt down Jesus followers and take them back to Washington in chains, I think we'd all be concerned at hearing that news. Would you agree? But as an individual, your concern might just go right through the roof if God were to speak to you and tell you to go find the head of the secret police and tell him about Jesus. <laughs> I mean, just lay your cards right out there on the table. He's here to arrest you. You just go and tell him about Jesus. Well, well that's what God did. That's what, that's what this vision did. This is what Jesus did to Ananias. God gave him a huge and terrifying task. But God did that because he knew that Ananias was trustworthy. God knew that he could count on Ananias to be obedient and take the gospel, to the, the good news, to the head of the secret police, Saul of Tarsus. I mean, in retrospect and in hindsight, we know that Saul of Tarsus is about to become the Apostle Paul. But Ananias didn't know that. Ananias could not have known or sensed the enormity of the task uh, that w with which God had entrusted him. In the end, by his obedience to God and, and because of his trustworthiness in ministry, Ananias, more or less single-handedly, changed the course of human history. God considered Ananias trustworthy and appointed him to a task that most Jesus followers would have refused or might have refused. And the rest, as they say, is history. Ananias went to heal Saul of Tarsus and to give him some perspective on what God was about to do in Saul's life. And I think that Paul was reflecting back on the moment of his healing and his commissioning when he wrote verse 12, uh, particularly because of the wording that he uses here. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength. 
last word in the story, who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. God considered Paul to be trustworthy. In other words, just like Ananias, whom God considered to be trustworthy enough to to go to Saul, now God was considering Paul to be trustworthy to do what God had asked him to do. But it leaves me wanting to ask, in what way, in what In what way did God consider Paul trustworthy when he appointed him to service? Why did God consider Paul to be trustworthy? Was it it because Paul was good with money? Because, you know, people who are good with money are very often trustworthy. Was it because Paul was able to keep a secret? Trustworthy people usually are able to keep a secret. Was it because Paul was an experienced and qualified surgeon? I mean, if if your surgeon is not trustworthy, you probably shouldn't let him jack into your body. I'm just saying. But really, in what way did God consider Paul to be trustworthy? Well, to answer that question, we need to remember what went down when Ananias approached that man who had been murdering the followers of Jesus. Ananias healed Paul, but then he had a conversation with Paul where Ananias told Paul what God wanted him to do. In other words... On behalf of the Spirit of God, Ananias commissioned Paul to the ministry that God had for him. And what was Paul's Paul's commission? Well, when Ananias objected to reaching out to Saul of Tarsus, the Lord said to Ananias, I still want you to go and heal him because I have a plan for his life and he'll teach the Gentiles about me, including their kings and rulers. He'll also have much to teach the, the people of Israel and I want him to understand, I want him to understand that he will greatly suffer for my name. But we're back to that question. In what way did God consider Paul to be trustworthy when he appointed Paul to his service? Well, we don't actually have to go all the way back to the book of Acts. We just need to remember what Paul said at the end of the passage from last week, where in his letter to Timothy, Paul spoke of the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. What had God entrusted to Paul? And with what had God considered Paul trustworthy? The gospel. Paul, God entrusted the gospel to Paul because he considered Paul to be trustworthy, to to keep the purity, to keep the simplicity of that most important message. God knew that there was a need for someone. Watching Peter walk away, Barnabas walk away and be deceived, God knew that there was a need for someone who would not walk away under any circumstances. God knew that he could count on Paul to do whatever was necessary to preserve the purity and simplicity of the gospel for all future generations to come. God entrusted Paul with the most important and most valuable message in the universe. And God today has entrusted us with that same message. So that leaves me wondering what I'm doing with the message that God has entrusted to me. Am I living in a way that shows that God was right in his decision to consider me trustworthy when he shared that message with me in the first place? What are we doing with that message today that God has entrusted to us. Well, I think it's high time for a trip from the sublime to the ridiculous, and in that light, there's a video I want to show you. I, I don't know. 
How many of you are familiar with the kid snippets videos? Kid snippets, kid snippets, anybody? Uh, well, okay. Not even the same three people that, uh, anyway. Um, I, I don't know how many are familiar with those, but, but uh, those they're available on YouTube. And, and two children, the way this, the kid snippets works, two children are given an idea like a marriage proposal or learning to drive, you know, just something basic like that. And then the adults ask the children to imagine what would happen in those cases, and then the kids act out, uh, you know, what happens when a marriage proposal happens, or, and, uh, and they act out the scene while their voices are recorded. Then those recordings are taken by the adults, and grown-ups learn the dialogue, word for word, and act out the dialogue with very <laughs> amusing results. I want you to watch one with me that's called Math Class, where the kids imagined it and the grown-ups acted it out. Buckle your seatbelts. This gets, this gets weird. I think it's already starting. Okay, Hi. here's your homework. Um, first let me tell you the directions. Um, what form take away five? One, two, three, four, five, six. Take away. What's six take away one? One. No, you take away, so you take away one out of six. How much does it equal? What's five, 10 minus one? I don't know. One, two, three, four, five, six. Six, seven, eight, nine. 10. Nope. Take away one. What is this? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Nope. One, two, two Three, four, five, six, six, seven, eight. And eight, and one more, and add one more. How many is equal? One, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One. It equals, it makes nine. See how you take away? You take away one, and it equals one, Mm-hmm. Do you get it now? Yes. <laughs> I, uh, I have to admit that, that that video is funny. The only thing that keeps it from being hilarious is how often I've been that kid in that seat. <laughs> I'm not the sharpest pencil in the box, I admit that. And, and like you, uh, I have times when I just don't get it. I don't understand what somebody's trying to explain to me. Sometimes I react exactly in the same way that kid did. Do you get it? And I say yes, when I don't get it at all. Think about it. That teacher was entrusting that kid with a simple truth. 10 minus 1 equals... And 6 minus 1 equals... The teacher entrusted that little guy with that truth. But in the end, that little guy didn't end up being very trustworthy, did he? But 
It's not going to ruin his life or the lives of the people around him if he doesn't know and can't understand what six take away one is. It really isn't. I mean, maybe he shouldn't be an accountant when he grows up, but it's not going to ruin his life or destroy him. I say that all that to point out that in most cases, it's okay to be confused. If you find yourself being confused, that's okay. If, you're, if you are confused, then it's okay to admit that you're confused because we're all confused sometimes. But perhaps you'll agree with me that sometimes it's not okay to be confused. For example, it's not okay for a brain surgeon to be confused now that he's holding open house on your skull. It's not okay for a lady from Britain to be confused about which side of the street she should drive on when she's in your neighborhood. It's not okay to be confused about which end of a lit cigarette you should put in your mouth. Though for the sake of your health, perhaps both ends are, are, are the wrong end. It's not okay to be confused about which end of the toilet brush to hold when you're cleaning the bathroom. <laughs> if you're confused about that, please do not shake hands with me later. But if we were to make a list of all the things that it's not okay to be confused about, we'd have to put the gospel right at the top as the number one thing about which it is not okay to be confused. I say that because of what happened to the churches in Galatia, churches that were, were not unlike our church. Paul had originally preached the gospel to the churches in Galatia. They had understood it and accepted the message. They had been saved by it. Paul then left Galatia and went to other places to preach. And in the meantime, another group of teachers, the Judaizers, showed up there in Galatia. And remember, the message that the Judaizers preached was very different from the message that Paul had preached when he was in Galatia. And they should have picked up on that instantly. This is not what Paul taught us when he was here. In the end, the Judaizers confused the Jesus followers in Galatia because it was their goal to confuse the Jesus followers there in Galatia. And sadly, as we've been saying, the churches in Galatia decided to believe the Judaizers instead of believing Paul. And in response to that, Paul wrote the, the words of verse 6 and 7 of chapter 1 of Galatians, verses that we looked at last week. I am astonished. I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel which is really no gospel at all. And that's why last week and again this week, and we said it's not okay to be confused about the gospel. The reason that it's not okay to be confused about the gospel is because of what's at stake when we mess up the gospel. Paul says here very clearly that when they turned away from the true gospel, they were actually deserting God, the one who had called them into relationship with himself. When you change the gospel or allow someone else to change the gospel, you walk away from God. That's how serious the matter is. I mentioned a little while ago that I'm not the sharpest pencil in the box, and, and yet for some reason God has entrusted me with a, a truly amazing ministry opportunities over the years. At the same time, I have to say that I believe that Paul was one of the sharpest pencils in all the pencil boxes of all time. I mean, he was... One sharp dude. But we have to be careful that we understand that God didn't entrust Paul with the gospel because of who Paul was. God entrusted Paul with the gospel in spite of who he was. And I'm saying that because of what Paul said in verses 13 and 14. Even though I was once a blasphemer 
and a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. As we think about what Paul means here, I want to remind you of something that we learned when we studied Romans together. When I don't get the punishment that I deserve, that's mercy. Do you remember us saying this? When I don't get the punishment that I deserve, that's mercy. And when I get the reward that I don't deserve, that's grace. That's the difference. Not a huge difference, but but measurable. There's a measurable difference between mercy and grace. When I don't get the punishment I deserve, that's mercy. When I do get the reward that I don't deserve, that's grace. Paul was a blasphemer who said terrible things and untrue things about Jesus. Paul was a persecutor who did terrible things to the followers of Jesus. Paul was a violent man who, when we first met him back in the book of Acts, he was helping Stephen. He was helping people to stone Stephen to death. And I was glad to be able to do it. Paul was consenting. He was in agreement with what they did to Stephen. But God showed Paul mercy and didn't give Paul the punishment that he deserved. And that had nothing to do with Paul being smart. It it had to do with his being ignorant of the truth. Paul just said that and unwilling to believe it. But notice that God didn't stop at not giving Paul the punishment he deserved. God also gave Paul a reward that he didn't deserve. God entrusted Paul with the most precious message in the universe, the gospel. But God didn't do that because Paul was smart. God did that because God is gracious. That's the difference. All that to say that that if understanding the gospel and, and being entrusted with it for ministry was dependent on Paul being smart, we're in a very tenuous position today. But since it was God's mercy and God's grace that entrusted the gospel to Paul and placed him in the ministry, that means there's hope for every one of us here today. God has entrusted us with the gospel and considered us trustworthy enough to appoint us to his service. I'm going to spend the rest of my life, the rest of my days, being amazed that God included me in that deal. And I'm going to spend the rest of my life making sure that the pure, simple message of the gospel will be safe with me until I stand in the presence of the one who died for my sins according to the Scriptures, was buried, and was raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And I'm going to spend the rest of my ministry here at the Potter's House, however long that is, reminding you that we have one job, And Jesus said it better than I ever could. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, all people groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely... I am with you always to the very end of the age. In closing, let me read the passage for this morning to you one more time. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured on me abundantly, along with the faith and love 
that are in Christ Jesus. Listen, God has considered you to be trustworthy this morning and has entrusted you with the gospel, so I have to ask, are you proving yourself to be worthy of God's trust? Will you stand with me in the presence? Our Father, our God, we bless your name today for your goodness, for your kindness, for your mercy, for your grace, for the faith and the love that is in Christ Jesus. We're so thankful this morning that you've offered all of that to us, not because we're the sharpest pencils in the box, not because we're smarter than other people or better than other people. You've done that because you are gracious. And so God, having been given this gracious gift of the gospel, having been given this gracious commission that we've all received to go and make disciples of all people groups, we ask that you would ignite our hearts, that you would motivate us and make us competent to get the one job done that Jesus asked us to do for the sake of his glory, for the sake of the good of those around us in our community and those around the world. We ask these things especially thankful that any time we come into your presence, Father, we're able to mention the name of Jesus to you. Amen and amen. Well, we've, uh, we've huddled up, and if, again, if you're new here, I apologize for this little bit of diversity that we have at the end. Uh, we've thought of ourselves as huddling up here, and, and we've, we've discussed the play, and we're going to go out and run it. We're going to go find somebody. We're going to go find somebody this week that needs to hear the good news about Jesus, and we're going to stand there, and we're going to go, No. Because next Sunday, we don't want to have to come here and say, I was, I was, I was not right. <laughs> My wife will tell me that some time. You're not right. I mean, you know. No, I, she, she never says that to me. We're going to head out there and we're going to share the good news with somebody this week. Okay? Same three people. We're going to head, we're going to head out there, in case you didn't hear me, and we're going to share the good news with somebody this week. Right? Right, all right. In that case, all that's left for me as the coach, if that's what, it is, what I am, is to say, ready? Go get him, Potter's house. <laughs>